there's a new book out about the making of the Godfather, which oh, yeah. describes evidently. I'm going to get it. How it nearly almost wasn't made, and then the Wall Street. There's some new TV show on Paramount Network about how about the making of it and how it just nearly wasn't made so many times. And the producers said, "There's no way Marlon Brando. The, the, you're not going to get financing for it if you use Brando. He's the wrong guy for the role." And um, it's just it's amazing how it nearly didn't happen. This icon of American cinema. I've got a, I got a camera. This is a. Are you Apple or Samsung? I'm Apple. Is that? Is there? Is this like Ford and Chevrolet? I'm Apple. I'm Apple because. Am I making a statement here? No, probably you are. We probably are, and we don't know it. <laughs> we probably um, ought to yeah. Know. This is the Bill Walton Show, April twenty-six. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, today I've asked my old friend and frequent guest, John Tamney, to join us again for what I hope will be expect will be an extremely interesting contrarian conversation. John is a man who's never seen an opinion that he didn't think that maybe there was another point of view. And, and usually he's, he's interesting and, and most often right. Uh, John is vice president of FreedomWorks and editor of Real Clear Markets and author of a terrific book, uh, When Politicians Panic, which is about the mishandling, the government mishandling of the of the, coronas, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, hey, John. Great to be here. Welcome Good to, to be, be here. So, so what do we want to talk about today? I know we want to talk about Elon Musk. I know we want to talk about doctors. We want to talk about inflation. Mm -hmm. um, we want to talk about, uh, um, I think we want to talk about uh, the creative process. And we were talking before we came on about you've written five books now. Mm-hmm. And about how you know what that's like, and how you uh, how you conceive of them, and how you how you feel about them after you've written them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of good subjects today. Um, I want to steal it from you for a second, just because Elon Musk is who everyone is talking about. It seems yeah. like right now, and I'm reminded of going to see the movie Working Girl in the late 1980s. Classic Mike Nichols. I think it's an excellent film. I saw it with my parents, and my dad said to someone we knew in the theater afterwards, uh, boy, Hollywood has an interesting a way of portraying investment banking, which has nothing to do with investment banking. And so in reading about Elon Musk's financing of his Twitter acquisition, I'm wondering what you as an investment banker thought. Uh, when you read about it, what did the media get right and wrong? Uh, what well, are we missing? Well, one of the fun parts was, I mean, it's a $44 billion deal, which is the biggest buyout in, in, in history. And it meant raising a lot of cash from, uh, from uh, third parties. And some of the skeptics early on said, well, Elon will never get Wall Street to work with him because he's too controversial. Well, as it turned out, he put together a syndicate that included, I think, every single Wall Street bank, uh, and, and those not even on Wall Street, but outside the U.S., except for the two that are working for Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so everybody wanted to come to the party. It's a, it's a fee machine. Uh, and what he's got now is he's raised $13 billion from a group of banks. And he's, he's got, a, he put up his Tesla stock as collateral and he raised about 12.5 billion. But that still leaves him needing $21 billion of cash. And he's only got about 3 billion. And so I think people, if there's any misapprehension, is that uh, he's necessarily going to come through with all that money on his own. I mean, my guess is he's going to find other people to join in the syndicate. I was astonished Jack Dorsey, who I thought was doing a pretty bad job as CEO, came out and endorsed Musk's takeover, thinking that you know this would be in the strongest hands with Musk as the owner. 
and he didn't think it was good that Twitter was a public company, Jack's going to cash out $960 billion, million. So there's some chance he could stay in. There's some other investors that could come in. Um, but it's, uh, I think the other thing is that this deal's not done. Mm -hmm. I mean, when does it, when's it supposed to close? September? Is that, is that, is that the day? Yeah. I, there's regulatory hurdles. Three or four months. There's regulatory mm -hmm. hurdles. We know that the deep state is, is, is terrible. You know, does not want mass to create a, a, an alternative speech platform where, where the, uh, the voices that have been canceled are, are allowed to uh, talk freely. A lot of, lot of hostility. So whether it'll be justice department, SEC, um, there's now some talk that, uh, Apple is not going to let uh, the Twitter app on their ice, ice their ice, their store unless uh, unless it it uh, it uh, monitors speech, and mm -hmm. so you've got somebody looking over Elon Musk's Twitter to make sure that he was you know in their view doing what they thought Twitter was doing before, which was silencing a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, that have been silenced. I mean, have you lost your Twitter account yet? I haven't, um, but I am skeptical. I'd be curious. Um, my view is that our side, if you want to call our side libertarian, conservative, whatever it is, we've overstated the uh, the censoring of us by some of the social media. And I know you've got stories. There are stories out there. We've me, overstated it. Well, let me give you my contrarian view on on the matter. For one, it's interesting as a market signal that if you go to most any right of center organization and you look at their communication strategy, They've a huge part of their strategy is expanding their Twitter presence, YouTube, Facebook, the different, the different social media. So it strikes me that they're able to use it more effectively than sometimes the media, our, our media will let on. But tell me if I'm wrong, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story, I'm not questioning it at all. But when you try to censor something, you tend to amplify it. And the fact that they tried to hide something in many ways made it blow up as a story. Yeah, but it only got amplified uh, after the election. But even before it the election. It was shut down before the election. But even then, I could go on Twitter and talk about Hunter Biden. I could talk about the laptop. I could, if I couldn't put the New York Post article up, I could talk about it. It got around. Uh, it's hard to hide the truth. The truth is hard to keep out. Ronald Reagan had no good media on his side in 1984 re-election. USA Today's statistic on it was 93% negative about Reagan, yet he won 49 states to one. When you have good ideas, they find, they find the audience. And I'm wondering, is there something to that here? Because I know you've been censored, so. Well, I think there's censorship that's outright, which is where you put something up on, uh, uh, YouTube, which we have, particularly, we did a couple of shows on ivermectin. Mm -hmm. Can I mention that now? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they certainly didn't want me to. They said it didn't didn't meet with community guidelines, mm -hmm. and community guidelines were defined by whatever the CDC was saying. And of course, we now know how credible what the CDC was saying and how agenda driven that was. Uh, but I think the censorship that you really worry about is the self censorship. Mm -hmm. because everybody's out there trying to put their material out there, but there's a lot of things you don't say because you think you may end up on the radar screen of some, uh, of some kid in San Francisco that decides to shut you down. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what's not said that may be a bigger problem than what is said and what's, what's censored. So I think mm -hmm. it's had a chilling effect on speech. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, you know, pulling, um, you know, you've got the oldest newspaper in America, and you shut that story down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we now know that the woman who did that was the chief censorship officer. That's more than her title, obviously, at Twitter. And she evidently, she was also the general counsel. And during the, during the negotiations with Musk, when it became clear that Musk was going to end up getting the company, she broke down in tears. Really? Because she, you know, her... Her worldview was not going to predominate, and, and her worldview was infusing all of the uh, decisions they made about this is okay, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. You don't want that, and I don't want that. So I do think it's a serious issue, and I don't think the truth quite got out because they did some polls afterwards uh, 
And there's something like 20%, 30% of the people who voted for Biden said if they'd known that story, they would not have voted for him. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't minimize it. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I, I think it did a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, I, I, it's compelling. I can't, especially I think your point about what's what people don't say. There's got to be the unseen considered here and our people self-censoring. So I'm not dismissing it altogether. But I, I do think that any times, the other thing I would say is that to the extent that they try to shut down an idea or a way of thinking, what I like about Elon Musk is that rather than complain, he bought the company or he is trying to buy it. Uh, I look back to uh, Rupert Murdoch. Let's look back to the creation of Fox, something widely ridiculed. Now, Murdoch's sense was that there was a need for a different point of view, a different approach to the news out there in media, and so he did it, and Fox has become wildly successful. I prefer the old right that rather than saying, oh, we want better treatment from social media, they're liberals, they're left-wingers, oh, guess what? You've just created a, for us the ultimate market opportunity. We're going to create something new, and we're going to knock you out because let's remember, CNN was not afraid of Fox back in the 1990s? Well, <laughs> CNN was a real uh, news outlet in the, in the mm -hmm. 1990s. I mean, Kenny here, who produces this show, was one of the first, uh, first producers, White House producers for CNN. It was a real news outlet. Mm -hmm. Now it's just an opinion piece yep. for, uh, you know, for the Democrat Party, mm -hmm. or maybe the other way around. So. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but what, what's your essential point that these, but there's opportunities for speech to get out, even though all the major platforms are controlled by the left? Yeah, no, I think so. I, I think it creates a market opportunity. What does Jeff Bezos always say? Your margin's my opportunity. So if you're going to shut down certain avenues of information, that creates an opportunity for someone. Well, well what do you think about what Jeff Bezos said about Musk, uh, that he may not be the right owner for Twitter because Musk does so much in China and that he's going to be compromised by his Chinese uh, connections. What do you think about that? I tend to be one of these people that thinks that the more engagement there is around the world, the better. I, I, I'll stand by my view that there are bad leaders in China, that settled science. Uh, the Chinese people, it's evident they love us. And all you need to know that is to visit China. Everywhere you go is Americana everywhere you look. When's the last time you were there? Um, two years ago, right the summer before the lockdowns began. And it's fascinating. McDonald's is everywhere, Apple stores everywhere, Nike stores, Buick cars. Uh, the Chinese people who were starving for so much of my childhood are conducting a love affair with all things American. And I think you find something similar in other countries. I've never been to Iran, but it's interesting growing up in Southern California. Uh, it's full of Iranian people. And where it really gets fascinating is Beverly Hills is where the biggest population in many ways of Iranians live peacefully alongside Jewish people. And they get along beautifully. And the Iranian people love the American people. And so I'm always skeptical. I think, I think politicians are bad. I think anyone who's in power, not uh, controlled by market signals, is kind of dangerous. But I, anything that has us doing more but, with a part of the, that part of the world, I think the better. But who has more power now? Is it, is it the government or is it some of the big companies? I'm, I'm, I'm here with John Tamney, my, my favorite contrarian. <laughs> We're about to wander into... Uh, whether the Chinese Communist Party is a force for good or evil in the world. <laughs> um, anyway, but let's go. Let's back up to this question I'm asking because you know, I, you and I come out of a, a paradigm I think that says the private sector, voluntary exchange, uh, people doing business, uh, free to create, free to innovate, in a marketplace where good ideas succeed and bad ideas fail. That's a wonderful, uh, ideal world that uh, I think we both believe in. And if you look at all the wealth that's been created in the world forever, that's where almost all of it's been created. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, you're hard-pressed to find where governments have created much wealth, except those that have left a level playing field with good courts and laws and, and ability for people to be free and innovate. Um, so I, but I'm not sure that's the world we're in now. 
I mean, if you look at the size of the multinationals now and look at the power they have relative to uh, governments, and if you look away the leaders of the multinationals or the big corporations, you know, this whole thing with Disney weighing in in Florida, this whole issue with Coca-Cola weighing in and the Georgia, uh, the, the laws in Georgia, um, I, I think it's a lot blurrier than just free market versus government. Yes, but remember the last show we did here with George Will, and I think he's right. Uh, nothing lasts forever. Let's not forget that in the 1960s, it was a known quantity among economists that unless government did something about GM, that it would soon control the whole car market. Three decades later, later it was being bailed out by the, by the taxpayer. Uh, you think, what was the top stock in the 1980s? Circuit City, no longer with us. What was one of the highest flyers in the 90s was, was Blockbuster. When it wanted to merge with Movie Gallery in the early parts of the 21st century, FTC said no, too dominant in, uh, in video rental space, only for Netflix to come in and wipe it out. Netflix, by the way, a company that tried to sell itself twice to Blockbuster and was laughed out of the room. And you look at the powerful companies that began the, this century. GE was the most valuable company in the world. How's it doing today? Uh, the two most popular and powerful internet companies, AOL and Yahoo, where are they? Uh, Enron was the best managed company. Tyco was the next GE. Uh, the list goes on, and, and at that time, let's remember, Apple was stumbling out of bankruptcy. People didn't, weren't sure it was going to make it. Amazon was Amazon.org, you know, couldn't create profits. But you were laughed at if you owned Amazon shares when the 21st century began. Facebook didn't exist. Um, Microsoft had just been ripped up by the federal government, but it managed to survive. The list goes on and on. And so implicit in the power of business today is that that's the frontier, that it's forever. And we know throughout history that it's not. That's why we're the richest country in the world, because it's ne the businesses of today rarely dominate tomorrow. But I think of what I'm wondering about, and I'm not sure I've got an absolute answer on this, is that that's fine in the economic sphere. We know that a good product is only attractive for a while, and somebody comes along with something better, and then that uh, is, is eclipsed. But this is, more, this is more about the speech argument. And when you look at the, the small group, group of companies that control speech, I think that's different from a GM in 1958 or a circuit city in the 1980s. I mean, those were, those were commercial enterprises aimed at serving customers in a marketplace and somebody else came up with something better to knock them off. I'm concerned about the, the chilling effect that, that uh, Google and Facebook and once upon a time Twitter, and I hope that changes, were, were, were shaping the public debate. It's crossed over into something that's different. You know, is it a public utility? It, should it be regulated? I mean, I don't think it should be regulated, but I'm not so sure that this isn't a different issue than just uh, an antitrust uh, market concentration issue. I hear you, but I would say even business is business. And the simple truth is that Twitter is not the frontier of communications. And my honest guess is that Elon Musk didn't buy a company for $44 billion to maintain the status quo. He's got a vision for Twitter that none of us can imagine. That's the only reason he would buy it, because he recognizes that as it stands today, Twitter, if it remained what it is, would be wiped off the map. And I think Jeff, uh, Mark Zuckerberg recognizes this. I think Jeff Bezos recognizes this. I think Google recognizes this. If they stay in place, they will not be very important a few years from now. And so you see them spending tens of billions of dollars a year. They're not doing that out of love, but they recognize that in business, stasis is the path to obsolescence. And so it would be one thing if Twitter were the frontier of communications, but history says clearly that it's not. Uh, what do you mean history says clearly it is because not? Because what dominates today rarely dominates in the future. And certainly that's true in the United States. And so what we see is speech today, what we see is the internet. Uh, the future trillionaires in society are going to render the internet yesterday's news. How will they do it? Who knows? Because when you think about it, Jeff Bezos was ridiculed for presuming that Amazon would, would be something. Uh, the Silicon Valley is littered with VCs that passed on Google, that passed on Twitter. 
that passed on every Elon Musk venture that he's ever tried. And so the future is going to be different. It's going to be different companies. But if we knew what those companies were going to be, we'd be billionaires. Well, you're making a commercial argument or an investment argument. I'm not so sure you're making a speech argument. But that it comes from speech precisely because the future is going to be, is going to be defined by different companies. The ability of Twitter to be powerful forever, I don't think there's any evidence that that's Well, can true. I say this in a different way? Sure. I'm going to improve on what you're saying. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you're going you're gonna, to... Elon Musk's vision is he's seeing a, an ossified, totally left-wing biased social media landscape, and the entrepreneurial opportunity is to come in to provide a service that isn't that, mm -hmm. that opens it up for a lot of other kinds of speech, and that in doing that, people are going to flood to the marketplace or the market square, town square of Twitter, and they're going to start leaving Facebook. They're going to start talking about Google search engine and whether that's a level playing field. We know it's not. And all of a sudden, he's, he's shining a light on these other companies' practices, and his is better. Mm -hmm. And right now, we don't have anything to compare it with. He's going to give us that. Amen. Is that, was that your... Th that, that, would, that would certainly be part of it. And he's going to do more than that, though. See, I don't think he's doing this to give me the right to talk about why uh, governments overreacted to the virus on Twitter. I think that's going to be part of it. But Elon Musk, look at his history. There's a reason he's the richest man in the world. Everything he's ever done was so ridiculed by conventional thought at the time. Oh, wait, PayPal? Well, I'm, I'm willing to go with that, but I just want to know kind of, I, I want to speculate specifically what you think he's got in mind. Because I know he's a country. I know he's yeah. done what he's done, but I don't. I would not presume to guess. My only guess is that it's going to be so surprising, and that's why he's taking it private. What he's going to do is something that, if Twitter were a public company, would be such a distraction. The shares are going to would move so wildly in a public company setting because it's going to be so different from what Twitter's doing now. Okay, is my well, guess, and I think, which is why I think it's about more than free speech. Well, I think free speech is the product he's going to offer, and I think that's what will make it attractive. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that right now. Mm -hmm. I'll wager that's a small aspect of it. What's going to make it wildly attractive? What's going to make him, if it works, a trillionaire? Is that he's got a vision for it that that well, the John, board look look. Can I, this, this is going to be more interactive. So continue. He's got a vision, but... He's got a vision for it that I don't think anyone's ever conceived, that goes well beyond, is my, is my guess, that goes well beyond just uh, free speech, and that's why he's buying it, and that's why he's taking it private. It's, it's so counter to what people ever thought of that we're going to think... I think a lot of us, probably including me, will say, wait, what is he doing? Well, let's, let's, let's have fun with this. I look at Tesla... And I don't think Tesla's, I think he may be moving out of Tesla and getting into something entirely different, more interesting business model. Because mm -hmm. there's this picture of a Tesla car, you know, fully decked out with the chassis on it and with the body on it and everything. And then there was another photo right beside it of the Tesla battery. And the Tesla battery is this thousand pound brick, which sits between the four wheels and I had Mark Mills on, and we talked about, what's it take to make that 1,000-pound battery? Well, you got to mine about 500,000 pounds of other stuff in order to make it. And if we wanted to scale Tesla, and we wanted to make all the electric vehicles, everything's going to be an electric vehicle, you couldn't do it. I mean, the, the mining requirements, the, the material requirements that go into that battery. And by the way, the battery is just a storage unit. It doesn't create energy. It doesn't produce energy. So you get this 1,000-pound battery, and you compare that to a 60-pound gas tank. Mm -hmm. We're really sacrificing incredible um, economic efficiency by, by going into to electric. I wouldn't be sure that Elon might be saying, well, maybe, maybe we push this one as far as we can, and I've got to move into another one. And you know when you'll know whether that's true or not, getting back to your first point, How's he going to come up with the $21 million in cash? Well, one of the ways he could do it is selling Tesla stock. Now, 
if he doesn't do that, he says, gee, I've really got to hold it. Or, or he can go out and pass the hat and try to get other people to come into the syndicate. But if he doesn't sell Tesla, that's going to say, well, he believes that that's, you know, he wants to keep a lot, big chunk of his fortune in that. But what if he sells $21 million or $18, million, $18 billion of Tesla? What's that say about his view on the company? Well, right now, I would say he's still pretty bullish because, as you say, he would still have a huge position in Tesla. Yeah. Um, if he had $21 billion total, total and was selling it, you'd be, you'd be a bit more skeptical. I'm trying to out-contrary John Candy. <laughs> <laughs> what I would... I could be... This is completely speculative. You know, it, it's... It, <laughs> I'm just not sure electric batteries for, for all the cars in the world and all the trucks in the world is going to be even remotely viable. Mm -hmm. We're going to hit a wall. We maybe already have hit a wall mm -hmm. economically and physically. Well, and, and, and it's, it's interesting there. You look at Tesla nearly died not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, he nearly, he nearly lost everything on this, and he was days from Tesla going bankrupt. And so will it, will it die? It's, it's going to be interesting. Um, my guess is, and, and I think Mark would agree, is that big 1,000-pound battery, which one thing about it, because of where it's situated, it's rendered Tesla the, the safest car on the road by far. Uh, you just can't flip a Tesla. And so it, it, the safety ratings, Tesla beats Volvo. It's just at the tip, tip top because of that. But history says with everything, you look at the original um, uh, IBM computer of the 1960s, it filled a room and it cost over a million dollars and it had no, no capabilities. Nowadays, I've got a super cute computer in my pocket this size that is exponentially more capable. You wonder... My guess is that 1,000-pound battery is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, just like everything else. And I say this not as I have zero engineering knowledge and don't have close to your financial knowledge, but what you see with, with, with these advances that usually they're able to create more and more with less and less materials. We'll see. Well, the only question, I, I, I don't, yeah, obviously there's going to be better and better batteries, but it's a question of how much time do we have to, to innovate and create those batteries versus the amount of materials we need to, to manufacture the conventional batteries, and can we afford it? I don't think we can, but that's, we're, uh, we're being speculative. Let's, let's talk about money. You wrote a book. Your first one, your first book was called Does the Fed Matter? Or, yeah, Who Needs the Fed? Who Needs the Fed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're now... And there's an argument that the Fed's just not that important. Well, that's your argument. Yeah. Anyway, I'm here to, with John Tamney... My great friend and great, great uh, reverse engineering thinker, uh, and we're going to talk about why we do not need a Federal Reserve Board. Uh, the Fed is obviously in the news a lot today. I would say unfairly. Um, let me ask, I'm so glad we get to have this discussion because you, like me, were from day one against the lockdowns. And the lockdowns, among other things, unemployed 25% of the United States, but what they also did is that much of the world was put out of work. Uh, we talk about supply chains, and we talk about them as though they're some tangible object, but you're a businessman, and I know you find that insulting. A supply chain is a consequence of billions of workers around the world developing trillions of commercial relationships over the decades. A supply chain is something that's developed over time. Well, in the year 2020, politicians ripped it up, and they, it became illegal to open up your factory. It became illegal to go to work, and so people were out of work. And then they gave us our freedom back. And in giving us our freedom back, they expected prices to remain where they were before the lockdowns, which I find exponentially more insulting than Barack Obama's line, you didn't build that. And by extension, I find it insulting that people are saying, this is inflation. No, 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 no. Command and control was imposed. We had miraculously low prices before the lockdowns that were a consequence of global cooperation. That we have higher prices today is a statement, a screaming statement of the obvious to me. You can't just turn back on what was so amazing overnight and so when people say this is inflation, I say, no, 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 no. Inflation is a devaluation of the currency. This was command and control. Let's define our terms correctly. 
We kill the supply side. Yes. Now, yes. there's another way to say that. I don't like the word supply chain much anymore. I tend to think of the of the economy as a web of interrelationships. It's, it's three-dimensional. Like probably with time, it's four-dimensional. And, and the politicians who knew nothing about... Uh, about how the economy works, decided this business was essential, this business was non-essential. Now, by definition, if you're in business and you're making a profit, you're essential somewhere, mm -hmm. somehow. You're mm -hmm. part of this whole web of interrelationships. Inter inter and the, the political class, not just the United States, but all over the world, to seem deem chunks of the economy uh, not essential. Even, mm -hmm. what was the governor of... Uh, Michigan, she decided the one department at Home Depot was essential and this other one wasn't. What the hell does she know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> she mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we're paying, we're, I agree with you. We are paying the price for that right now because we've, we've broken a lot of the economic relationships which are, which are essential. They're all essential. And mm -hmm. to bring it to fast forward it, the thing that I'm finding interesting now because I'm following what's going on in China I mean, yeah, there may be a few politicians in China, but the Chinese Communist Party has 80 million members. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's a billion four people and they've got a happy middle class, the Chinese Communist Party's got a lock hand on that country. And look at what's going on with these lockdowns in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And 25 million people, largest port in the world, four times larger than uh, uh, Los Angeles, and it's not only Shanghai, but of the 100 largest uh, cities in, uh, in China, he's got 75 of them locked down, not nearly as badly as, as, uh, as uh, Shanghai, but very badly. Trucking, all the transportation, the, the, the shipping I mentioned, manufacturing, some of the service businesses, they've all been arbitrarily shut down by the political class in China. Why on earth would he be doing that? Because it's you know we, we think we've got problems now with inflation. If you wreck the Chinese productive capacity along with what we've done here in the West, I mean what we're seeing now is just a just a just a shadow of what we might be seeing mm -hmm. next year. I agree completely. The, the the one clarification I want to make is this isn't inflation. If if suddenly. Uh, Oh, I don't know. They they ban the growing of Honeycrisp apples in part of the United States, such that demand for them outstrips supply. You're saying it's not money; it's it's the supply yeah, of the stuff yeah. that we don't have. Because if I'm spending a hundred dollars a week on apples when I used to spend twenty five, I've got seventy five dollars less buying power elsewhere in the economy. A rising price implies a falling price somewhere else, and vice versa. Inflation is a devaluation of the currency. And which means that prices across the board, the money measure suddenly is shrunken. So in dollars, if you shrink the dollar, everything is more expensive in dollars. And I think it frustrates me as someone, as a member of the right, uh, under George W. Bush, the dollar was severely devalued. It collapsed against the euro, the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, the pound, you name it. And, and you look at the price of oil, when he got into office, it was $25 a barrel. Uh, by 2007, it was $150 a barrel. Where were all these inflation hawks during Bush's presidency? Because suddenly they're here now. And to me, it's, well, wait a second, was Biden president in 2020? Because my, and this is, Biden's an idiot. Okay, settled science. But he wasn't presiding over these lockdowns. And when America takes a break from reality, the price implications for the world are profound. And so I'm saying, there's inflation, which is the devaluation of the currency, and then there's, there's the imposition of command and control. There's a huge difference. This is not inflation. Is CPI registering inflation? Yes, but that just signals that CPI is not a very useful way of measuring what is de currency devaluation or just, as you say, a supply problem. Can I give you a prescription? Yes. The government's just ought to get out of the way and let, let the private economy heal itself and let people get back into whatever they were doing and let the mm -hmm. what they deemed non-essential essential. Yep. And that's not the prescription that we're hearing. No, we're not. And we're so here. if you want to talk about how we get the economy or how we get inflation under control, let the private sector, let the supply side, uh, you know, and, and instead, what, what are they doing? They're, the regulation, you know, the, what they're doing to shut down... Uh, 
fossil fuels and natural gas, et cetera, is just just astonishing. They're making it worse. Mm -hmm. But it's a, you're saying it's a supply issue. It's, it's not a, a dollar issue. Yeah, it's it, it's command and control issue. And and it, that's interesting. You, you have the yeah. left saying, "Well, economic growth causes inflation." No, the surest sign of economic growth is falling prices. What do you as an investor do? You supply capital to businesses, not so they can raise prices, so that they can produce more with less. In growing economies, the surest sign, again, is prices going down. You agree with my policy prescription? Well, because your policy prescription is to allow more investment. That's what you're implying. We got to open up the supply the, yeah, side. You open up, you open up the economy again. Yeah. Suddenly investment, companies never run out of money. They run out of investor trust. And so right now investors can't trust the future as much because look at what you're describing in China, one of the most economically productive countries on earth. These people are suddenly having their freedom to produce taken from them. I don't think China is the most economically productive. Well, They've got a massive overinvestment. They've got 68 million empty apartments. They got 30% of their economy in residential real estate. They've got they've got they've got uh, what do they call them zombie companies? You know, running out running. There are thousands of them that are just kept alive by the state, who says to the banks, "Don't call the loans." So. I'm not so sure it's that productive, but they've certainly pushed a lot into the being the most uh, aggressive uh, uh, exporter and, and building up the manufacturing and, and, uh, and, and an economy with that. But they still don't have a real consumer economy. But, the, but, but they export to import. Let's not forget that Apple, the most valuable company in the world, sells a fifth of its iPhones in China. Uh, GM sells more cars in China than it does in North America. But Apple only gets to do that because they won't let certain social media apps on their phones in China. They're working with the Chinese Communist Party hand in hand. If I offer you billions of dollars, a billion dollar market, um, and I say I've got a few few requirements, <laughs> again, I'm not defending it, but it's like the late Jerry Buss. Can, can uh, we stipulate that this is complicated? It's very complicated. <laughs> I think back to uh, uh, Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers. <laughs> Suddenly it became the Great Western Forum. They said, why are you putting a corporate name on your form? He said, he said to the interviewer, I'll give you $15 million if I can call you Billy rather than Bobby. Will you take it? Well, <laughs> but John, anyway, this, this is Bill Walton's show. I'm here with John Tamney, who we, we agree that it is settled science that Joe Biden is a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what's going on in China is really interesting, John, because you're, you're uh, you know, you believe that they've got this great middle class and they're, they love America. And yet you've got this incredible um, uh, totalitarian move by Xi to lock everybody down. And remember, Shanghai's got like 800 subsidiaries of big multinational companies there. They've got 70,000 um, foreign firms operating in there. And he's just basically said, we're shutting this thing down because of COVID. Now, you wrote a book on COVID. Politicians panicked. I think you concluded that COVID, while dangerous, was not the solution was not like locking everything down. And we've got evidence of that you know, Steve Moore's group and uh, Phil Kirpham just put out a really good study on uh, 50, the 50 states and who benefited from lockdowns and who benefited from opening up. And the, and the jury's in. The states that didn't lock down fared much better economically, life expectancy, although all the metrics that, that are social goods, they did a lot better by not locking down. So my question, my, this inquiring mind wants to know from John Tamney, why would Xi, who I think is a very smart guy, decide that lockdowns are actually going to, uh, you know, uh, accomplish anything in China? It staggers the mind. And I think the markets agree with you. Um, he, I think the markets thought he was smarter. Because, now I would be against lockdowns even if you could prove to me that they save lives, but we know they don't. But... We both would. If they worked, we'd be all for it. No, we wouldn't. If, if you could prove to me that they save lives, I would still say you don't take away freedom. Because, see, if something, if, a la if, if too much freedom causes me to die, well... Well, I'm, we got to do the numbers. I mean, Yeah, but yeah. with or without numbers, okay. if you can prove to me that being around other people is going to cause me to die, well, then I don't need to be forced to avoid people. I'm just going to do it on my own. And so, it, but it makes you wonder, what is she thinking without an economy... Any country's nothing. 
without your the most productive city in your economy, with it locked down, what's the game plan here? And now, some will say, well, he's trying to prove that he's got power. Can, but what does that get you if you've got no economy? Can we go deep and contrarian? Because I think the game, look at Putin's playing and Xi's playing, they both have either tacitly or, or overtly said, we don't care about the economy. We've got our we've got our geostrategic aims, and those are much more important than the economy. And I think, I think there's some chance. I mean, look at the the net effect of the uh, of all the sanctions in Russia. Well, Russia's still selling its oil and gas, mm -hmm. and you know they've just stopped selling it to uh, Poland and, and Bulgaria. And Poland and Bulgaria are saying, "Oh, we'll find other sources." Well, that's unclear where they're going to find them because. Biden has shut down our natural gas business here. He hadn't shut it down, but he certainly cut it back. So I don't know where they're going to find it. At the worst case, they're going to have shortages and incredible supply-side inflation, and it's going to be very destabilizing for Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think Xi maybe this this is a it may be that Xi's calculated. Well, let's crush our economy. Let's shut down the the, the web of the the, the economy. And who's that going to hurt a lot? It's going to hurt America a lot because of all the interrelationships we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that uh, Poland and Bulgaria will still buy Russian gas, just like they, they're just going to buy it from those they sell it to. Uh, no, so, wait, wait, wait. How's that? He's demanded they pay them in rubles. Yeah, How are they going to so, buy Russian gas? We're going to have... We'll just buy it from those they're selling it to. Because the Russia is still taking euros from friendly friendly nations, and so they'll buy it. it should, there, to this day, there's this myth that the Arabs cut us off from oil in the 1970s. No, they didn't. We still consumed Arab oil. We just bought it from those they sold to. And in, a, in, a, in an economy, you can't account for the final destination of anything. And so I think a lot of that symbolism. The one thing I would say is that you can't have geostrategic aims if you don't have an economy. Uh, the Soviet Union in the 20, 20th century didn't have an economy to fight a war. Uh, China with China didn't have the economy. They're, they're, now I would argue they're more dangerous when they're poor, but if you crush the economy, you don't have the resources to expand globally like you would if you're a rich country. And so uh, there will be de deferring views about that, but I, it staggers well, you the You think that, but you're not G. You don't really, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you. The, the, the foundation of wealth and power is a, is a robust, growing economy, innovative. Um, you know, America won World War II because we basically had the private sector um, ingenuity that, that did an amazing number of things in two or three years to create a, a war machine that was un, uh, unparalleled. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, I, I'm not so sure. Xi, I mean, he look at what he did with, did with the tech companies. Mm -hmm. He's 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 disappeared many of the tech billionaires. Um, he shut down the private tutoring industry in China. Mm -hmm. He's shown every willingness to, to to take companies out that don't don't uh, don't tow whatever line he he wants them to tow. I'm not so sure he he sees that the way you see it. No, I, I think you're right, and believe me, this isn't me. I think the long game with China is I think the people love, love prosperity, and they're increasingly enjoying it. Uh, this could be a bad period for them. Um, I'm not drawing moral equivalents. I'll just point out, boy, isn't it interesting how if you become powerful here, you better have a good Washington presence because they're going to get you here. Uh, Bill Gates has had the temerity to combine Internet Explorer with his software package, and they tried to break up his company. Um, any company that becomes too successful in the United States, invariably the CEOs are hauled before Congress because they want you to pay the tithe here. Um, and this isn't to defend Xi, but I think there is a need within politicians, regardless of country and party and everything, to make sure that if you become successful, you know who's boss. And it sadly happens here, too. Well, um, okay, you rest your case. <laughs> no, I, I don't know what the case is, but I don't know. It, it's, it, isn't it sad? Uh, you, were, you were up very high at, at Lehman. No, I, I was not. I was, a, I was a senior vice president in the M&A department. But so that, that's, pr that's pretty high. I got paid a lot. Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> I always heard that Lee, and I knew this about Goldman Sachs, but I always heard that any of the good investment banks always had up tip top a Republican and a Democrat to deal with Washington. I don't think and, that's true anymore. Really? No. Back in Goldman, back in the Goldman Sachs days, they had John Whitehead. Yeah, that was the Republican. And, and they had another guy. It was a Levy. They're, they're, they always had two two guys yeah. doing it. Now they've gone to one. I'm not so sure they feel they need to do that anymore mm -hmm. because the Democrats so control Washington. Mm -hmm. I don't know the Republicans. Even when Trump was in the office, it wasn't clear that Republicans, in, in quotation marks, controlled Washington. No. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, we're supposed to have this big wave election in November of 2022. A lot of Republicans are going to come in, new congressmen, maybe, maybe take control of the Senate. It's unclear to me whether Mitch McConnell or, or uh, oh gosh, Kevin McCarthy, who's likely to be speaker, are going to do much, change much. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. So, I don't know. I'm not so sure they need to be bipartisan anymore. Wall Street, is just like Silicon Valley, is going hard left. I think probably 90% of the dollars out of Wall Street now go to Democrats, mm -hmm. um, which I think is too bad. Yeah. Well, um, the uh, okay. So we've concluded that it's so, but we haven't gotten rid of the Fed yet. How are we going to get rid of the Fed? I've we're got, we got a couple minutes here. We're never getting rid of the Fed. <laughs> the Fed, matter. but let's imagine if the Fed didn't exist, would government still try to manipulate interest rates? Well, of course. Would government still regulate banks? Of course. Uh, the Fed is just an outsourced function of Congress. And that's why I don't understand why we focus on it so much. Uh, I just finished a book about Germany after World War II, and they had rations, 1,550 calories per day. It's not enough to survive. Guess what? When you take away a market, you create another market. The Fed can't control the price of credit. Uh, why do I know this? Because I'm sitting in the house of a very successful investment banker. And why, why did you, were you paid so well? because there is no such thing as easy money in the real economy. It's precisely because it is so hard to get capital that people like you, and I, I don't say this because you're here, I view investment bankers as heroic. You have a lot of money because what people presume about the Fed's ability to do has nothing to do with reality. So my view is, oh God, let the Fed exist. Let politicians blame it for stuff that it has nothing to do with. Meanwhile, the real economy will continue to work around it. Explain that again. We've talked about it before. I think it's worth bearing. I want to get into this show. Explain what credit is. Credit is access to real resources. We borrow money for what it can be exchanged for. Access to human capital, physical capital, trucks, tractors, computers, desk chairs. And so in a growing global economy, naturally there's more credit. Now you have a lot of wackos on our side saying, oh, look at this, the growing amount of borrowing out there. That must be a sign of the Fed. Easy money. Show me the easy money. Look at a company like Uber, a recent sort of high-flying IPO. When it got its first round of funding on, uh, in Silicon Valley, VC money, a third of the company was sold for $10 million. Equity, does that sound like easy money? A company that's worth billions today, you had to give away a third? There is no such thing as easy money, and you are evidence of that. Because what your, your job was never easy. In fact, you competed with other investment banks to finance good ideas. But they didn't pay you this well because what your, your job was easy, because the Fed just sat there and handed you money. They paid you a lot because you did the impossible. Well, the, the, the truth is that credit's never there when you need it. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. If you don't need it, you got it's plenty of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you need it... Forget it. That, that's that's the reality of uh, of money. Well, John, I've, we're 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 running out of time. Uh, is there anything else we ought to we've missed that we wanted to talk about? What's your uh, next book? The next book is on. It's titled "Bringing a Adam Smith Back into the American Home." <laughs> and it's an argument. Using Adam Smith. Which Adam books. Smith? The, the uh, supply, the, the wealth the of nations, wealth or, of nations. Or, the, or the or the theory of moral sentiment. Uh, the wealth of nations. Okay. Throughout, there is an argument that if you own a house, 
you are a citizen of the land you live on. If you own stocks and bonds, you're a citizen of the world. And Adam Smith's point was that mobility is one of the greatest drivers of economic growth. We talk about tax cuts and different things, and they all matter. But what arguably is the greatest source of American brilliance, American, well, for one, we've attracted the world's drivers forever. Well, guess what? When you can come to a place and you're free to move about without any restrictions, you can take your human capital. We've discussed on this show before, human capital is, is the ultimate investment. What you do with your talent, and you can bring your talents anywhere. Yet in modern times, politicians have glorified the owning of the home. You know what they call the, a house in France? If you get into real estate in France, they call it immobilier, as in it locks you down to an area. America is about people moving amid restlessly amid abundance. And so the less, book- Less and less. Yeah, yeah. Less yeah, and less. Mm -hmm, but historically it was. And so the book makes an argument that we were glorifying home housing and home ownership to our everlasting detriment. And Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation was very clear about this, that you, you, this is not something to glorify. So it's making that case and we'll see. Interesting. Although mobility is picking, a lot of people are moving to Florida. Yeah. In mm -hmm. Texas, the states that didn't lock down. Mm -hmm. So I think they may be picking Fingers up. Fingers crossed. Well, anyway, this has been the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with my great thinking friend, John Tamney. <laughs> He's got a book coming out soon talking about how we're going to bring Adam Smith into the American household or at least into American thinking. Looking forward to it. Yes. And John, how do we find you? Uh, you can go on, uh, let's see, realclearmarkets.com. That's where I, I put all my write-ups. You can go on Amazon and hopefully buy lots of my books. Um, Twitter, Facebook, the usual places. Okay. Yeah, I right. use them. They haven't canceled me yet, so. <laughs> no, nah, you know, yeah. with, with the brave new world of uh, Elon Musk, you're not going to be canceled. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining, and uh, stay tuned. We're, uh, we're here to talk about what's true, what's right, and, and what's next, and I think we did some of that today, so uh, hope you enjoyed it, and we'll talk next time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.